listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This message is from the series Heroes and Underdogs, with a new weekly topic on one or more people who did great things for God. Be sure to check out Michael's book, A Call for Courage, Living with Power, Truth, and Love in an Age of Intolerance and Fear. You can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. What are you looking for from God? What are you expecting from him? When you go to church, what is it that you're looking for? What do you want God to do in your life? And how do you want God to use you as a result of showing up and saying, God, I'm available, I'm fat. That means faithful, available, teachable. I'm ready to receive from you. What is it that you're expecting from God? Come on, we all have expectations. What are your expectations? What do you dream about when it comes to God and his perspective about you, your perspective about him? What is it that you want to accomplish by the time they put you six feet under? What is it? What about your family? Don't you have dreams and a vision for your family where God is somehow involved in that family, an integral part, and it sounds even uncomfortable to say part, because I don't know if it's really correct to say that God is a part of my life, and maybe we'll understand that more by the time we're done together. You know, we're on a journey together today. We're all in the same boat, rowing in the same direction, and that direction is toward God. So I might be on the platform speaking, You might be in a chair listening, but at the end of the day, I'm trying to listen to God. You're trying to listen to God. I'm expecting God to move powerfully. Hopefully, you're expecting God to move powerfully. I don't want to just dispense information. Neither does God. I'm looking to learn and to hear from him so that I can put into practice whatever it is that he's saying to me. What is it that you expect from God? What do you want God to do in your life? What do you want him to do in your family? What do you need him to do in your business? What do we need God to do in our neighborhoods and in our nation? What is it that you're hungering for from God? Why do you come to church? Why did you come to church? And will you be the same once we say goodbye to each other today? Because our time is short, not just here and now, but in the eternal scheme of things, life is short. It's a mist, your life and mine, that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Then people really think about God. You know, what you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. The understanding that you have about what God wants to do in your life, what he wants to do in your family, what he wants to do in your mist, the vapor of your life, the vapor of my life. What you believe about God is the number one, single most important thing about you. So what is it that you believe about God? What you really believe. I don't mean what you're expected to believe when you come to church. I mean in the six days other than when you come to church. What is it that you're believing about God? What is it that you're believing God to accomplish in your life and in your marriage? What do you need God to do in your marriage? What do you need him to do in your relationships, in particular as a parent or as a guardian? You've got children, you've got a child. What is it that you need God to do in your family situation that God maybe wants to do, but maybe you haven't fully embraced it, or maybe God is about to do it and hasn't yet begun to do it? What is it that you are expecting from God? Everybody has expectations, And we have expectations about what church life should be like. What should my church be like? I want my church to be this way. I want my church to be that way. I wish my church was this. I wish my church was that. I wish my church didn't. I wish my church did. What is it? But at the end of the day, isn't the only opinion that really matters the eternally significant opinion, which is held by God? He knows everything about you, has amazing vision, for your life. But do you have God's vision for your life? Are you walking as the hero and the underdog 
the hero who saves the day and the underdog, the one who's outnumbered that God called you to be? Or have you mistakenly begun to think or been thinking for a long time that God's going to use somebody else, but he certainly can't use you because you're not the stuff that heroes are made of. You're so outnumbered that you could not possibly succeed as an underdog. Have you basically looked at what God is doing in the lives of other people and been oohed and awed about what God is doing in the lives of other people that you've basically just taken a step off to the side or maybe two and find yourself sitting on the 50-yard line while other people are moving that divine ball, so to speak, that agenda down the field? How is it that we can live in a nation of so much plenty when it comes to Bible teaching and biblical resources? And yet it seems like so many of us are waiting for somebody else to run with God in such a way that God changes the entire culture because of one individual. I don't know about you, but I'll be honest about myself. When I read the pages of the Bible, if I give a casual look at a particular passage, I end up believing that, well, God used that person and I begin to worship the individual that I'm reading about in the Bible, whether it's the Apostle Paul or whether it's Timothy or whether it's Titus or whether it's Moses or Abraham or David or Joshua or Mary, the mother of Jesus, or the 11 apostles. I don't like referring to Judas because I don't like backstabbers. Matthias, the one who replaced Judas. You know, you read the Bible and you think, Well, that was then, but this is now. God could use fishermen and unschooled ordinary people, but I'm not that kind of an unschooled person. I'm not that kind of an ordinary person. I haven't gone to Bible college, haven't gone to seminary, haven't been ordained. God didn't call me to be a missionary in some faraway land or even here in the United States. Didn't call me to be a pastor, didn't call me to be an elder, didn't call me to be a deacon. And what we end up doing is we end up thinking that our education, formally speaking, is what qualifies us or disqualifies us, the lack of that education, for serving God. And all of these things have to do with what you believe about God and how God moves and how God operates and the kind of people that God uses. I think that God has a tremendous sense of humor and you do too. Because if you knew what I was like before God got a hold of me, as I continue to remember what I was like before God got a hold of me, you would understand, you'd let out a big laugh because you'd say, this guy's a pastor. (laughs) This guy's a pastor. What a joke. But it really isn't a joke because you and I are so much alike. You might have different nuances to your past or your present or your struggles, your fears, your shame issues. It's just a different coat of paint, but it's still paint. We all have things that we can lay before God and that we embrace that cause us to have faulty understandings of who God is and how he moves, and the kind of people that he raises up, and how a situation that's gone awry gets straightened out. You know how God straightens out crooked situations? Here's what I want you to do when you go home. Do it before you go to lunch, or if you go out to eat and you have lunch today, I want you to do this at the restaurant. Very first assignment when you get out of your car, once you get into it, is to go into the restroom and find that thing that will reflect back to you. And as you're looking eye to eye with the individual staring back at you, I want you to comprehend that you could be a modern-day Moses. You could be a modern-day David. You could be a modern-day Mary. You could be a modern-day apostle. You could be a modern-day Abraham. You could be a modern-day what? Hero. Modern-day underdog. That you are exactly... Exactly. You are cut from the same dye, the exact same dye that God used to fashion every single hero and underdog we read about in the Bible. There is no superhuman apart from Jesus, who in fact was fully human, fully God. You've got to be careful that your own worst enemy doesn't take up residence between your ears 
because you could make the mistake of convincing yourself that God can use somebody else, but he just can't use me. That thing that you've been treating as the unpardonable sin in your life, it isn't unpardonable. Jesus died for every single one of your sins. Every single one. Every single thing that shames you, every single thing that causes you to quake and shake in your boots, that paralyzes you, causes you to be wrapped up in fear and to be immobilized. All the self-talk that you tell yourself that is contrary to who God is and who you are in relationship to him, Jesus died for all of that. And we've got enough people together in our community of faith to change all of your county forever, eternally speaking. We have enough people in our community of faith to change the nation, literally. And I'm going to keep blowing that trumpet, and I'm going to keep blowing that trumpet because it's not mine, it's God's. God has always and only ever used people exactly, and I do mean exactly, like you. To change a workplace, to change a house of worship, to change a neighborhood, to change a marriage, you're it. You are God's plan A. There is no plan B. There is not some point in the future where God's going to say, I'm through with human beings, not going to use them anymore. I'm going to start using Ritz crackers. I'm going to start using cows. You heard that cows are under the crosshairs these days? For flatulence? Have you heard that? Yeah. You're God's plan A. I'm God's plan A. Empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ, sent on a mission that we will always succeed in if we say yes to God's invitation. What do you believe about God? Do you believe that he's invited you? Do you believe that God can use you? Or have you wrongly told God, even subtly, most of the resistance that we put up before God is subtle, not overt. Ooh. <laughs> Wait a minute. Most of the resistance that we put up to God goes under the radar. It's subtle. This thing we live in called the flesh is so thoroughly hostile to God. It's so incredibly adept at deception and self-serving me, myself, and I. We don't even understand. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it, the Bible says. But you're the only plan that God now has through Jesus Christ, and you will remain God's plan A until Jesus himself cracks the sky, descends literally on the Mount of Olives, splits it in two, and then we end up being with the Lord forever. Now, there's nuances to that and the timing of all of that, but make no mistake about it, Jesus is coming. He's coming soon in the eternal scheme of things. We've been singing about it. But in the meantime, it's not God that concerns me, it's us. You've got to be careful that your own worst enemy doesn't take up residence between your ears and you begin to believe things about God that aren't true. You begin to believe things about yourself that aren't true. And before you know it, you're watching other people live for God and you're watching before our very eyes an experiment in godlessness with our country of what happens when everybody crosses their arms and waits for somebody else to stand up and speak out and to be the hero and underdog that our nation desperately needs. Now I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, which is often referred to as the Hall of Faith. The Hall of Faith in the book of Hebrews. And you can read it for yourself and you can go back and meditate and chew on this passage of Scripture, but I'm going to pick it up in verse 31, actually. Because, again, the individual that's presented here is absolutely amazing because it's Rahab, the sexually immoral woman, the prostitute, <laughs> who ends up becoming mightily used by God. Now, if God can use a prostitute, I don't have an excuse, and neither do you. 
Verse 31, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies, reference to the Old Testament. Verse 32, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Japheth and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of of lions, all these amazing stories that we are familiar with if we read the Old Testament, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. You want to talk about vision. These are people who were able to persist and weren't concerned about being popular. Be really careful. I mean, we hear it so much that I don't think we hear it anymore. But God wants us to hear it. Do not confuse popularity with persistence. The world's drunk on popularity today. It's all about popularity, and the flesh feeds it, the world feeds it, the devil loves it. God doesn't want popularity. He wants persistence. You know, it's impossible to separate persistence with God from faith in God. Those two are inseparable. You want to have faith in the hall of faith here that we're reading about, Hebrews chapter 11? You want to have faith when it comes to honoring God and walking with him? You have to be persistent. You have to be persistent. You cannot be a person of faith without being a person of persistence. And one of the things that you need to be persistent about is to have God's vision for your life. These people, as it's saying here in verse 35, They understood that they would rise to a better life, to resist the world, to resist the enemy, to resist their own flesh, which cries out for safety and security. In order to do that, they had to have a vision for their life of who God is and where they were going to end up if they were persistent. Do you have that kind of a vision where you can say no to the flesh, no to the devil, and no to the world in your workplace, or in your marriage, where marriage is one of the chief things that God gives to many of us to help us not just be satisfied and to have companionship, but to be Christ-like in character. And if you haven't yet realized that your spouse is one of the main individuals that God has placed in your life, if you're married, to help you become more like Jesus, then you're not paying attention to Jesus, let alone your spouse. Your spouse's quirks and idiosyncrasies, sin, they get under your skin. You get that serious case of epidermis penetratus, you know, that ability to get underneath somebody's skin. Really what they are, they're reminders that, don't you think that God sees your quirks and your idiosyncrasies and your sin, and yet he took care of it on the cross and loves you unconditionally? embraces you, and with all of that quirkiness and that, the idiosyncrasies and the sin, guess what? Your spouse is still amazingly, fearfully, wonderfully made in the image of his or her creator, a walking masterpiece on two legs, even on his or her worst day. I mean, if you think that marriage, the purpose of marriage is to get your own needs met, and simply for companionship, You don't understand what God is trying to do in your life. He's trying to make you like Jesus in character, trying to get you to appreciate God the Father who loves you and wants to wrap his loving arms around you. Do you have that understanding of who God is in your life? Because if you don't, you will struggle with being persistent for that better life that's coming. You'll sell out instead of holding out. That's one of the things that God calls us to do. Hold out for what's coming. God's best is yet to come. All that the world has to offer us pales in comparison to the better life that's coming. And these people were able to hold out and endure hardship and difficulty and persecution and ridicule. They were among the minority in a world that loves to promote the majority. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. God is calling you. He's calling you. He's calling me to embrace being a minority in a world where the majority seems to rule and to reign. 
But so much of us screams, we want to be popular. You can't have popularity and persistence. They don't travel together. God wants you to embrace persistence, being faithful to him, and leave the consequences at his feet. We hear it so many times, but we don't really hear it anymore. God wants me to be a minority, but what does that mean? You will be mocked. You will be a misfit. You will be misunderstood. You know that we're heading into new territory when Apple decided in December to take down an app because they said it was hate speech when this ministry, which actually was a quite reputable ministry, still is a quite reputable ministry, was helping people navigate through struggles with their sexual identity. And so Apple said, that's hate talk, it's hate speech, can't have an app anymore through Apple. Listen, you think that's going to be an isolated situation, you're not paying attention. The majority is trying to impose upon you and me with increasing zeal a new standard of what is right and what is wrong. And if you think, if I think that we're going to stand up and be faithful to Jesus when things get really difficult, when we're having a difficult time settling that better place, that better life, that vision that God has for our lives, in the meantime, we're fooling ourselves. We will never be faithful to God and persistent with God in the difficult times if we take him casually and lightly in the easy times. And brother, sister, we got it pretty easy right now. You ain't seen nothing yet. Because if you read your Bible, you see that in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves. They'll be characterized by hatred and disobedience and discord, jealousy, sexual immorality. And they'll call wrong right and right wrong. And anybody who's in the minority won't just be considered a minority. You'll be considered to be the misfit and the nut job. And you know what I say? (laughs) I say bring it on because when you read Hebrews chapter 11, in fact, when you read all 66 books of the Bible, you see again and again that God always uses regular, ordinary people who are in the minority, to stand up and speak out to the majority. Guess what? The majority is often wrong. You and God make up the majority. Might not experience the fruits of our labors this side of eternity, but that better life is coming. And it's about time we embrace it. And we begin to settle into the new skin this new life that God has given us in Christ, and we stop being concerned about being popular, even subtly, subtly, and we begin to embrace, once again, persistence, which is to have faith in God and to be faithful to God. God has called you. As a member of his household, as somebody who's born again, washed by the blood of Jesus, whose sins have been removed, God has called you to be a minority in a majority world where you are standing up and speaking out because you have God's understanding of who you are and who he is and that better place and come hell or high water. No matter the difficult time, no matter the prosperous time, you will be persistently faithful to God and you will not sell out, you will be sold out. God wants you to be sold out for Jesus, but we hear it so often and it becomes so commonplace in the church that we don't hear it any longer. God has called you to be this kind of a minority where your faithfulness, your persistence to Jesus could cost you your life. Don't think, well, if things got really bad, I'd really, listen, We're all experiencing the frog in the kettle in this country. And the heat's getting turned up, and it's going to get turned up higher and higher. The time to jump out of the kettle is right now and to say, wait a second. I see what's happening here. I see the strategy here. I'm going to forsake popularity, and I'm going to embrace persistence with my God. And then when the water gets to the boiling point, you won't be in the pot unaware of what's actually happening. God wants you to be on fire for him while the world is burning out of control. 
to the point where we read a passage like this and we don't say, that's an anomaly. Those people were really on fire for you. Look at these people in the hall of faith. That was them, but this is now. That was them, but this is me. No, that's not why it's there. The Bible is not a book of exceptions. It's a book of examples. This is what it looks like to be persistent with God. This is what it looks like. Not what we're seeing in many circles of churchianity today where the objective is to be hip. But God's objective is that we be holy. People want a hip pastor. People want a hip church. God wants a holy pastor and pastors, and he wants a holy church. Holy is not a four-letter word. It's a beautiful word. It means to be set apart for the purpose of God. Do you know that's what the word holy means? Let's bring it down from that stratospheric level where we're thinking about chanting monks in some monastery somewhere. Bring it down here to the tarmac and understand that to be holy is to be set apart for God. And these people that we're reading about in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 They were holy. They were set apart. They understood that a better life awaited them. They understood that their God was sovereign and in control. And they understood that if popularity was their pursuit, they could have spared their own lives. They could have had more comfortable lives. They could have had a convenient life, could have had it much better this side of eternity, but they were willing to engage in this idea of postponed gratification, understanding that if they're persistent with God now, they'll get to see him face to face. And what they're going to get in the life to come makes this life that we're experiencing right now, I mean, we have to be out of our minds to even think there's a comparison. There is no comparison. This is what it means to be among the minority. This is what it means to be unpopular in a world that is drunk, out of control, on a quest for popularity. See, people want a popular pastor. God wants a powerful pastor. People want popular friends, individuals. God wants his people to be on purpose and to be filled with that same power that he wants to be coursing through the veins of a pastor. It's not just for the pastor to be powerful and on fire for God. It's for all of God's people to be powerful power-filled courtesy of the Holy Spirit. Your name needs to be right here one day and perhaps what might be an expanding hall of faith where your name can be inserted right next to Rahab the prostitute. Stop letting your past determine your present. Stop letting popularity determine your persistence. Understand that God's called you to be among the minority hear what the Spirit of God is trying to say to you today. This is not a message outside of the context of what's happening in our nation. I want you to absolutely pay attention to what's happening in our nation. I want you to pay so much attention that when you go to the workplace and all of the issues that are being brought up, whether it's racism or whether it's sexual identity or whether it's purity versus impurity or whether it's Lady Gaga saying in one breath that she hates Christians and then in the next breath saying that she's a Christian woman, God wants you with love in your heart toward the people who are misled in the majority. And with truth coursing through your veins, he wants you to be that salt shaker, be that light in the midst of a dark environment, in your family, in your workplace, in the neighborhood, and in the nation. I absolutely am pushing the envelope to help you understand that God wants pastors to be powerful. He wants his people to be powerful. He wants you to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be persistent and to forsake popularity. Because if you continue to allow the world to influence you, and if you believe what your flesh says about you, the flesh always overestimates who we are. You will not be persistent You will not be the hero. You will not be the underdog that God wants you to be. But here's the good news. You can be the hero. You can be somebody who's in the minority. You can be somebody who does great things for God because you know who your God is and because you know what your God has called you 
to do. You know what your God has called you to be and you have made up your mind and every day and every moment of every day, it's not just a once and for all decision. I've decided to follow Jesus. That needs to be our mantra every single day. Today, I've decided to follow Jesus. Today, I will be keenly, astutely aware that the world wants me to be popular. I will be keenly, astutely aware that I want myself to be popular. The problem with the living sacrifice is that it has a tendency to crawl off the altar. Every single day, we need to get back on that altar of persistence where we are honoring God. That's what a hero does. That's what an underdog does. These people that we're reading about, these are underdogs. The world was not worthy of them. The world spit on them. The world persecuted them. The world killed them. And all they would have had to do is embrace their own safety, their own security, their own popularity, and they would have been fine. But they knew that there was something better that made the world that they were living in just a traveling place, just some place I'm traveling through, just something that is here for a little while, no matter how much money I have, no matter what kind of car I drive, no matter what kind of job I have, no matter how amazing my family might be or how difficult my family might be, whatever hardships or joys, mountaintops or valleys I'm going through, it's all going to pass. It's all going to pass. Not most of it. All of it's going to pass. And then it's God. God. In the meantime, it must be God and only God. Very easy to say, that I want to put Jesus first in my life, but these people in the hall of faith and all throughout the Bible, they weren't putting Jesus first. They were putting Jesus only. It's not that we add Jesus to our life. We put him first and we have a hierarchical approach to our lives. It's that it's Jesus only. These people were sold out when other people were selling out. These people were among the minority in the midst of a majority. These people are the ones that we're reading about today who gave great glory to God that we can ooh and ah over it, but we need to go beyond the ooing and the aahing. We need to go beyond putting these people on a pedestal. We need to give credit where it's due, but we need to realize, we need to ask, listen, am I that kind of person? Am I willing to speak up for what is right in a situation that doesn't jeopardize my life and livelihood? Why not? If God could empower these people to do it at the expense of facing their own death, then certainly he can help you stand up and speak out as a student in the school system, in the public school system where there's so much garbage going on. Certainly God can help you stand up and speak out in an area where people are pursuing popularity all the time. That's what it's about. Listen, I was a teenager. I know what it's like. Popularity rules and reigns. And you could allow yourself to be conformed into an image that you had no interest whatsoever in becoming, all because of popularity. I got a letter in December from a friend of our family that goes back 30 years. And I remember their little son, Danny, with his teeth that needed braces and an ear-to-ear -ear smile on Danny's face and Every time we'd see the mother and the father, we would tease Danny in a friendly way. I don't mean tease him, mocking, making fun of him. We would joke with him and play with him, and he would joke and play with us back. And it was that kind of a loving, friendly relationship. Well, I just got a letter. Danny now has his own family with four children, and Danny has overdosed on heroin four times. Danny woke up one day and said, I think I'm going to mess up my life. No, what happened was Danny tried to fill that God-shaped void that only Jesus can fill with the things of the world. I'm not belittling his situation. and There are family situations that can cause people to go in directions that they otherwise would not go, but I want you to understand that a little bit of popularity now might lead you to a heroin overdose down the road. Nobody wakes up and says, I think I'm going to completely destroy my life, but popularity will do that. You could become a prostitute, spiritually speaking, a complete sellout for something far lesser than being sold out for Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus first, and then my family second, and my job third. It's Jesus only. And these people that we're reading about in this hall of faith, 
chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, they give us a great understanding of what it means to be on fire for God. What he says, verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And you might say to yourself, but yeah, their difficulties were much harder than ours. That's exactly the point. If they were willing to endure all of this under much more serious persecution than what we're experiencing today, then why is it that we are so afraid of people's opinions of us and not consumed and concerned with the opinion that they have for God? Verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, and all of these, through, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They persisted in faithfulness to God because they knew what was coming. You know what's coming? Or have you lost sight of that? You know what's coming? I'll tell you what's coming. Jesus is coming back. And then he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And the sheep get to be with him forever and ever. And I don't want to get into the whole theology of, well, once saved, always saved. If somebody's backslidden, what does that mean? This is for you and somebody else is listening to the message. Is your life characterized by a persistent faith that doesn't give a rip about popularity, that you're going to follow God and leave the consequences with him? Or are you more concerned about what people think about you than about God? What is it that you expect from God in your life? What is it that you want him to do in your life, in your family, in your business, in your neighborhood, in our nation? And why can't you be that person who says, if it's going to be, it's up to me and God. I'm going to let God use me with all of my stuff, all of my past, all of my quirkiness, all of my sin that Jesus took on the cross. I'm going to let God use me. If God could use these people, he could use me. And listen, I want to warn you lovingly and I want to inspire you at the same time. You better get your walk with God together now. Right now. Not just because difficult times are coming in the future, but because Jesus is worthy, period. Fear has to do with judgment. Perfect love casts out fear. It's our love for God that should be motivating us toward obedience. So we think about holiness, being set apart for God. What is it that threatens to derail you? What is it that threatens to make you believe that popularity is more important than persistence? What is it that's taking your time or taking your money or taking your attention and causing you to look at something that you shouldn't look at, to go down a path that you shouldn't go down, to allow yourself to think in ways that you shouldn't think, to be set off course? What is it? That's subtle, not overt. Haven't you noticed the devil has not come knocking at your door at midnight and introduced himself? The boogeyman that you were afraid of when you were younger, that I was afraid of, check my bed before I go to bed, check underneath it, check the closet sometimes. Never met the boogeyman, he never showed up. Most of the things that threaten to derail us are the subtle things, the things that, ah, it's okay, it doesn't really matter, but all along the way, we forget holiness. And one of the ways that that happens is I think that God has so much patience, it's absolutely impossible to convey that patience because you think about the book of Numbers and Numbers 13 and how God's people did nothing more than grumble. They grumbled, they complained. It's all they did, they grumbled and they complained. And for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. That generation, the entire generation died off. But we think, well, grumbling, that's not so serious. Complaining about leaders or leadership, that's not so serious. If you read your Bible, you realize that it is. What I'm holding in my hand here is a handwritten letter from a couple from our church, Ruth Blessing. Some of you know who Ruth Blessing is. 86 years old. Her husband, Dick, is 88 years old. She wrote me this letter and here's what it says, in part. Dear Pastor Mike, Dick and I know the day was coming when we would not be able to continue at Grace Fellowship. We would have to say goodbye to you and to Janet and your adorable boys. I know I should say handsome, but I'm a grandma and a great-grandma, and the word is adorable. We've appreciated all of you. 
You've taught us well, exclamation point. My problem is my osteoporosis is creating havoc with my spine and my skeletal system. So we're looking for a church close to home. We're checking them out. We know that we don't have too many years left in this world and wrestle with the pain. We'd like to continue to support you, continue to stand with the church. Again, thank you for serving us all with your ministry. Like the Lord says, trust in him with all of your heart and let not your hearts be troubled. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Mike, she makes it personal, and he'll direct your paths. Our love always, Dick and Ruth blessing. And I called her up and I said, you are a tremendous blessing. She said to me, you know, I didn't become a blessing until I got married. Just talked to her this morning. Of course, got permission if I could read the letter. Talked to her a couple weeks ago. And I said, you have no idea how much your letter blessed me. You are a hero as far as I'm concerned. Because here you are, 86 years old, with reasons to complain, and yet you're finding joy and happiness in the midst of it. And how I wish I could clone you. Because so many people think that it's the number of years since they accepted Christ that makes them spiritually mature. No, it's not. The amount of time that has passed from the moment you gave your life to Christ to where you really are in terms of spiritual maturity has to do with persistence. God is so patient. He deals with so much of our grumbling and so many opinions that we have. People have so many opinions. The larger the church, the less the people have in common, the more opinions prevail. And I'll tell you what, Ruth Blessing is going to speak from the grave one day to all of us. I'll never forget. I'm thinking about framing this letter. Because at 86 years old, she took the time to kindly explain to me, when I wasn't asking her for it, why they're not able to travel the distance to come here anymore. But yet, she loves me, she loves Janet, she loves the boys, she loves the church, and I tell you, she's here with us right now in spirit. What a blessing, not just to have that name, but to be that kind of an example at 86 years old. That's persistence. And I hope I have that attitude if I get to be 86 or older. I hope you do too. See, because there's so many people in the body of Christ, and I can tell you it's true in every church around the country, people make the mistake of thinking because it's been so much time since I gave my life to Christ that that means that I, that you're what? Are you still a blessing? Are you persistent in being a blessing for Jesus Christ, whether you've known him for a week or for decades? I think it's important to see what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, verse 39 and verse 40, and apply it to ourselves as we get near to wrapping it up. All of these, though, commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these people who we've looked at in part, all listed but not exhaustively in Hebrews chapter 11. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us as they did. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is vision. That is unbelievable vision. And you know, I don't often write things down, but I did today because I want to get it right. February 4th, 1906, a man came into this world and lived to the ripe old age of 39 years. When he was 33 years old, he came from Germany to Union Theological Seminary because he was invited. He was a theologian and he escaped the Nazis in World War II. But soon after his decision to get here, he realized that he had made a mistake. Escaping Nazi Germany and being in the safety of being in the United States of America, I gotta be honest with you, if that was me, I would do whatever I could to get out of Nazi Germany to come to the United States of America. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer did exactly that. And soon after being here, when he was 33 years old, he wrote this letter saying this, and I quote, I've come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through the difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. 
I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. Oh, how we could learn from Dietrich Bonhoeffer today. I cannot make that choice from security. He made his choice to go back to Germany. And guess what? He returned to Germany on the last scheduled steamer to cross the Atlantic. A decision not to run from the battle, but to go right into the battle. A decision not to run and hide, but to move forward and to engage. That's a hero of the faith. That's somebody who was persistent in being faithful to Jesus. And oh, how we need an army of Dietrich Bonhoeffers today in the United States of America. How we need an army of faithful people who are persistent and don't care about popularity and are willing to keep that eternal vision of where they're headed and who God is and their relationship with him in the here and now in the midst of a world that's interested in money, interested in sex, interested in you name it. You think the opioid addiction epidemic that's happening in our country came out of the blue? It's no coincidence that it's happening right now. On April 9th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed by the Germans in a concentration camp. Two weeks later, the Americans liberated the concentration camp. Two weeks later. If that dude had just sought his own security and stayed in the United States, he would have been able to avoid all of this. You want to talk about bad timing and the sovereignty of God. And there's this account of Dietrich Bonhoeffer that goes like this, that he was stripped of his clothing, led naked before the gallows, climbed up the stairs, and was hung. Goes like this. A student and friend of Bonhoeffer's writes of a man who saw the execution. I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer, then climbed a few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. For decades, that was taken as the credible account of how Dietrich Bonhoeffer died at the age of 39 until we began to put more scrutiny behind it and realize that the person who gave that account was a doctor at the concentration camp who most likely wanted to avoid harsh punishment because he was responsible for the death of so many thousands of people in the concentration camp. And so after more scrutiny, it seems that that account is actually not true. And we have this as being a potential explanation of what actually really happened. A former prisoner at Flossenburg concentration camp cited the length of time it took for the execution to be completed, almost six hours, plus departures from camp procedure that would probably not have been allowed to prisoners so late in the war as jarring inconsistencies with the account I just read. Considering that the sentences had been confirmed at the highest levels of Nazi government by individuals with a pattern of torturing prisoners who dared to challenge the regime, it's more likely that the, quote, physical details of Bonhoeffer's death may have been much more difficult than we earlier had imagined, end quote. Other recent critics of the traditional account are more caustic. One terms the story by the concentration camp doctor as, quote, unfortunately a lie, end quote, citing additional factual inconsistencies. For example, the doctor described Bonhoeffer climbing the steps to the noose, but at Flossenburg, the gallows had no steps. Moreover, it appears that the doctor had the job of reviving the political prisoners after they had been hanged, reviving them, until they were almost dead in order to prolong the agony of their dying. Another critic charges that the doctor's report, his statement about Bonhoeffer as kneeling in wordy prayer belongs to the realm of legend. In other words, it's more likely that Dietrich Bonhoeffer 
so thoroughly understood who his God was, so thoroughly understood who he was in relationship to his God, so thoroughly understood that his life was a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes, so thoroughly understood that all the treasures of this world and all the popularity that it has to present pales in comparison to the kingdom that's coming. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was willing to give his life for that God and that glory and that vision. And what an amazing example of a hero and an underdog he is for you and me today where we get so concerned about things that really don't matter. Get out there into your school system and be a witness for Jesus Christ. As a parent with children, whether you have children who are adopted or they're your own or as a guardian, disciple your children like their lives depend upon it, it does. Pay attention to what's happening in the world around us because the wagons are circling and people of faith are in the crosshairs. Pay attention to what's happening in the news and make sure that you're walking closely with God, that you're not allowing the voices that you hear between your ears to derail you from sincere and pure, persistence, faith that is worthy of sacrificing even your own life. Balance your checkbook. Get rid of the junk in your garage. Get rid of the stuff, whatever sin, whatever distraction, whatever it is that you think is important that really isn't. Get rid of it and deal thoroughly with the stuff that will threaten to derail you. We're reading about all these beautiful heroes, all these amazing underdogs in the book of Hebrews and beyond. We're looking at people whose lives are really, truly, genuinely blessings. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I suggest that if he were here somehow to appear before us, he would point us to Jesus and help us understand that nothing compares to faithfulness with him. Interested in requesting Michael Anthony for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. You can get more resources just like this podcast through the app and website as well.